Jude 8 says something really weird. It says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This is one of Jude's triplets. It's talking about apostates. Those are people who once said that they are Christians, but they fell away. And it gives three details about them. One, they defile the flesh. Two, they reject authority. And three, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, we're going to talk about what that means today. But let's talk about why they do this. What is their basis for doing these things? Well, they do it by relying on their dreams. And what is that referring to? It's referring to people who try to change the word of God by claiming to have a dream, a vision, some kind of divine revelation. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a revelation from God, but if you do, it must be in line with what the Bible says. If it's not in line with the Bible, that is your first sign that this revelation or dream must be rejected. But Jude warns us about people who will claim to have a dream or a vision and then lead us into apostasy. It said these people pollute their own bodies. And go back to our lesson on Jude 7 if you, if you want to know what that means. It's talking there about sexual immorality. It said they pollute their own bodies. It said that they reject authority, whereas the Bible tells us to respect and honor those in charge of us. But these people will tell us to reject authority. And the third thing it said is that they will speak blasphemously against spiritual beings. And then to illustrate this point, let's read Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up a second. The archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses. I don't know about you, but I missed that Sunday school class. Where does this idea come from? And the answer is, we don't have a story about this in the Bible. So in verse 8, it tells us to reject those dreamers whose messages are not in line with the Bible. And then to illustrate this in the very next verse, it refers to a story that's not found in the Bible. <laughs> so if you're paying attention to what I've said so far, you should be pretty confused. I know I am. I find all of this to be weird, and I'd like to explore why it's in the Bible, or in this case, why it's not in the Bible. So turn to Jude and let's get weird. Welcome to Weird Stuff in the Bible, where we explore scripture passages that are bizarre, perplexing, or just plain weird. This is Luke Taylor, and today we're going to try to discover the origin of this reference that's that we just read about in Jude 9. The first time I read it, I used the ESV. This time I'm going to reread Jude 8 and 9, but in the NIV, just to kind of refresh ourselves of where we're at. It says, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him, condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude is a book that's full of callbacks. I, I referred to it on an earlier lesson as the Bible's junk drawer. You know, we all got that junk drawer in our house. It's where we stick a bunch of random things, and we're not really sure where they go. You know, they're uncategorizable just a random collection of objects, 
And so we stick them all in one place. And that's kind of like what Jude is. You know, it's so many random things. They don't really feel like they go together. They don't really feel like they belong anywhere else either. They just all kind of get dumped here into Jude. Well, this reference here in Jude 9, this is one of the wildest of all of Jude's callbacks because it calls back to something that's not even found anywhere in the Bible. It's talking about a time that Michael, one of God's angels, got into a fight with the devil over Moses' body. And so let's start with where we last see Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to work forward from there and try to piece all this together. Moses, as you might, or as you probably know, Moses did not get to go into the promised land. There was an incident where God wanted to provide water to the Israelites, but Moses did not obey God's instructions. God told him to speak to a rock and the water was going to come forth from it. Well, Moses was in a bad mood that day and he struck the rock with his staff. The water still came, but God was upset with Moses and, and God was so upset about this, he declared that Moses would have to die before the people could enter the promised land. Now, it might seem a little strange, you know, yes, Moses disobeyed, but why is God so upset over such a minor thing? And maybe we'll do an episode about that someday, because um, it's kind of a weird thing, but there is a reason. But to make a long story short, I'll just say Moses gave people the impression that God was mad at them, and God was not mad. And so that's what that's what was so upsetting to about this to God. And so Moses had to die. And this picks up here in Deuteronomy 34. This is the death of Moses. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. God right here was showing Moses all the things that he had for Israel, but he says, Moses, you can't go there. Which, man, that had to hurt for Moses. That's kind of twisting the knife right there. You know, this, this I think about this every time I read this passage. This is one of my biggest fears. Like, this is one of those verses that just really keeps me going. Um, I've been in ministry ever since I was 17. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've just kind of wanted to throw in the towel on it, you know, or even just take a break, you know, just told God, hey, could I just take a year or two off from this ministry thing? Just could I just focus on me for a while instead of focusing on others? And listen, guys, I know that's a selfish thought. Um, I'm just trying to be real with you right now. I've just had this thought before. Like, I just wish I could take a break for a lot of pastors do that. And then a lot of times they never come back to the ministry uh, because ministry can be exhausting. And so a lot of people give up on it. And here's what keeps me going, though. It's just one. It's one of my fears that like at the end of my life that God would tell me, Luke, I had so much more for you to accomplish while you were on this earth. But, you know, you just want to stick with it. Um, and, and I just, I would hate that thought. I don't want that to ever be said to me. So like, it's, it's just one of those thoughts that haunts me when I think about, uh, when I read this passage, I think about that. And, uh, anyway, let's keep going at verse five. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Moses is mentioned over 500 times in the Old Testament, but this is actually the only reference to his body. And so here's a few observations about this. 
Who did it? Who was it that it said buried Moses? Who buried Moses? It actually told us there in the verses. It says, "And he buried him." It's talking about God right there. God buried Moses's body. And we're going to read a little bit more on this later. Um, it might be that actually God instructed one of his angels to do it, but that's that's a key thing right there is that God was responsible for the placement of Moses's body. It's kind of mysterious. It said no one knows his grave to this day. It didn't say where it was. God buried Moses in an unknown location. I mean, it did say it was in the land of Moab, but that's a that's a wide enough area the Israelites never found it, you know, and they... They don't know the exact burial site. One reason could be that God didn't want Moses' burial site to be known. Um, he didn't want it to become venerated, have people try to build an idol or a worship center there. You know, that's the kind of thing the Israelites were prone to do. And, and God was perhaps trying to, to prevent that from happening. And there's another reason that God might be preserving the body of Moses. And uh, I will mention that later whenever we close down. Now let's talk about who Michael is, okay? You might recognize the name Michael is one of God's angels and is one of the very few angels who are mentioned by name in scripture. The other two would be Gabriel and Lucifer. Those are the only angels that we have a name for in the Bible. Gabriel is also the only angel, um, or sorry, Michael, he's the only angel who is named as an archangel in the Bible. And that means one of the the chief angels, I guess, uh, one of the the leader angels. Um, Now, according to the book of Enoch, there are seven archangels, and as we go through the book of Jude, we're going to keep running into the book of Enoch, <laughs> and so you might as well get used to it now if I'm bringing it up here, because um, I believe the book of Enoch is probably pretty reliable, that it's actually a pretty trustworthy source for spiritual information, and Enoch says that there are seven archangels, and that their names are Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, Uriel, Sariel, Raguel, and Remiel. And so I'll note that all of them end with the letters E-L, and that is a, a suffix that means God. For example, Gabriel, it means God is my strength. Michael means who is like God. And and actually, I would think probably um, to match all the other names, Michael, it's probably actually pronounced something like Michael or something like that. So I'm guessing because they all that's how the rest of them end as well with the letters E-L. And so anyway, the way we say it today in modern times, English, we say Michael. And so whatever, nothing wrong with that. Michael's specific role as an angel. He seems to be an angel that God has set in charge over Israel, like it's his job to watch over the Jews. Uh, When Daniel was in Babylon and he was praying and fasting and, and trying to get an answer from God, Michael made sure that Daniel's prayer was answered. Uh, I talked about that all the way back. I think it was episode two of this podcast. I talked about that. And so Michael is just, he's a fighter. He's uh, watching over the Jews and you find him in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and you find him right here in Jude getting into a fight with Satan. And note that Jesus, he's not the one who gets down in the dirt and wrestles with Satan here. It's not God versus Satan. It's not Jesus versus Satan. This is Michael versus Satan. You know, the devil might be God's chief rival, but they are not equals by any means. God doesn't have to get down and fight with the devil. Satan and Jesus are not co-combatants, okay? Jesus is so far above Satan that whenever he needs the devil taken care of, he just sends an angel to do it. Okay, let's talk about where this story of Michael and Satan getting into a fight, where it comes from. And it seems to draw on not just one specific source, 
It's actually a couple of different sources that are part of ancient Jewish literature. And there's a variety of ancient texts that the Jews would study beyond just the ancient scriptures. Sometimes the Bible writers would cite these texts. Um, For example, sometimes you'll hear a reference to the book of Jasher in the Old Testament. Um, And I mentioned Enoch's book a few moments ago. Uh, But Jasher, that's not a biblical book. It's simply a different ancient book that the Bible writers had. Uh, Same with, with Enoch, the book of Enoch. We call these books the Apocrypha. If we even have them, sometimes they're lost to history. We don't always have. I don't know if Jasher's even still around, but we call these ones that have been preserved. We call them the Apocrypha. And we, you know, we Christians nowadays, we kind of treat them like the Disney Star Wars movies. Um, You know, Star Wars fans, a lot of us just don't accept the Star Wars movies that Disney has made ever since they got the license for Star Wars 10 years ago. We don't like these Disney Star Wars. They are anathema to us. (laughs) You know, we just pretend Star Wars ended with episodes one through six, and there just weren't any films made after that. That was that was when it was over. The only real Star Wars, those are the ones that George Lucas made. And and that's kind of how Christians view the Apocrypha. <laughs> you know, we don't view those books as part of Scripture. And so a lot of us just say, hey, Christians just shouldn't even read them. Stay away from the, them. They're deceptive. They're evil. They're you know, oh, they're not the real scripture, so don't even touch them. Don't touch them with a 10-foot pole. Now, that is how a lot of Christians view it. That is kind of an overly simplistic view. Um, there might be some some books that we shouldn't read, okay? Like the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas. You know, those are, those are just made-up fictional junk. You don't have to waste your time with those, okay? You can throw it out. I saw one at Books A Million one time. I picked it up and opened it and read like one page. I'm like, this doesn't even feel like the Bible. It doesn't even have the feeling of scripture. I just knew it, you know, it was false right away. It has silly stories throughout it. So some of these, some of these books that get lumped in with the Apocrypha, you can throw them. The Acts of John, junk. The Gospel of Philip, junk. The Rise of Skywalker, junk. You don't have to do anything with those, okay? You can just get rid of them. But then there's there's other books that the Bible writers themselves would read and that they used, and that they even cited in the Bible itself. And when it comes to those, there's nothing wrong with reading those, okay? Now, it can be hard sometimes to know how much of them is true and how much isn't, because sometimes they deal with these spiritual things that are very strange and bizarre. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, we don't have a way to prove if it's true or not. So I get that. I understand that you don't, you don't have to put all your faith in those. But here's what I would say. If a Bible, writi- if a Bible writer will cite a story as true— then I'd say it's okay to believe it. And and that's kind of what we have going on here in Jude 9. There is an ancient text, and it was a commentary on the Torah, and this was written, it's like written for the Babylonians or something like that. It's called today the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. This was not written by some guy named Jonathan. We don't even know who wrote it. This was an ancient text that was basically some version of the Bible with some other ideas added into it. And um, one of these ideas is that Michael was set over as the guardian of Moses's grave. Now, the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, this was written long, 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 long after Moses, after Deuteronomy was written. We have no idea where some of these ideas originally came from. Like, we have no reason to believe that it's even true, except for the fact that Jude kind of seems to confirm it. Um, and I'm not saying the entire Targum Pseudo-Jonathan is true, but I'm saying, I will say this particular fact seems credible. 
that Michael was put in charge of Moses, uh, of his body. Uh, there's another source for this idea. It's an ancient work called the Assumption of Moses. Assumption is a word that historically means an ascension, uh, kind of like when Christ ascended into heaven. That's sometimes that is called the Assumption of Christ. And there's an ancient work about Moses' spirit that, that was going to heaven, and that's called the Assumption of Moses. Uh, here's, here's a description from Wikipedia of the Assumption of Moses. It says, The Assumption of Moses, also known as the Testament of Moses, is a first-century Jewish apocryphal work. It purports to contain secret prophecies Moses revealed to Joshua before passing leadership of the Israelites to him. It is characterized as a testament, meaning the final speech of a dying person. In this case, it would be Moses. According to this work, now this is back to me saying this, according to this work, Moses died in the land of Moab, as we read earlier in Deuteronomy. Later, God sent Michael to retrieve the body of Moses because God didn't want the Israelites to come upon it later, turn Moses' gravesite into some kind of idol. I kind of mentioned that before. And then the assumption of Moses claims that Satan got involved in the scenario and that Satan makes a claim that he has jurisdiction over material things. In Moses' body, it's a material thing. And so he says, therefore, the body of Moses should belong to him. And the devil also made a legal claim that Moses is a murderer, and so he does not deserve any honor to his own body. So Michael and the devil, they got into a dispute over the body, and Michael claimed that Satan was slandering Moses, which is kind of interesting because that accusation would be true. You know, Moses did commit a murderous act in, I think, Exodus chapter 2. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting that that this claim by Satan was shut down. But perhaps God had forgiven Moses by this point, and so maybe that's why it was considered slanderous to bring that against Moses. You know, it's just very interesting, um, and it goes right along with how the Bible describes Satan in Revelation 12.10. It says, The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. So Satan's role is to accuse people. And it goes right along with his characterization in Job. You know, when, when he says, does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, he was claiming there that Job only worships God because Job has never had to deal with any hardship. And of course, that gets proven wrong. But th- this, is, this is what Satan does. He's the accuser. Um, and this might be a good admonition for us. Live your life in such a way that you prove the devil wrong. <laughs> because it says in the Bible, he is accusing you before God day and night. He never stops. And, and I think if he'd go after Moses, he'd probably go after you. So anyway, according to the Assumption of Moses text, Satan and Michael, they got into a dispute over Moses' body, and Satan tried to take it for himself. Now, can you go read this story for yourself? Unfortunately, you can't. Um, we don't have the full version of this story preserved in history. We only have ancient writings of other ancient people who read this story, and then they wrote about it. And so we kind of have to go from there. Um, We don't have the original source anymore. Uh, And so again, this is like, this is pretty shady. It's like, we don't have like a firm foundational anything to believe that this actually happened, except for the book of Jude. Because Jude, who was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he verifies that all of this happened. So how did it turn out? Well, when Satan brought these charges against Moses, Michael did not stop and get into an intellectual dispute with Satan. He didn't get into 
legal arguments and all that. He didn't even try to have a conversation about it. It says that he said four words. He said, the Lord rebuke you. That was all he said. The Lord rebuke you. And whenever hearing that, Satan took flight. He immediately ran away. He turned tail. All he heard was the Lord rebuke you. And he was out of there. (laughs) And then Michael went and Michael did his job and he buried the body of Moses at some secret location where God wanted it. And that was all it took to get the devil out of his way. And I think that just goes to show how powerful the name of God is against the devil. James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I think this story from the Assumption of Moses, it verifies how easy this actually is. This is exactly what Michael did. He submitted to God. Okay, he placed himself under God's authority. He didn't come against Satan in his own power. He didn't make some of these bold declarations that, you know, some Christians will make these claims today and and really kind of go overboard, I think, on fighting the devil. He He didn't do any of that. He didn't put on a big show. He simply cited God's authority, and he said, the Lord rebuke you. He resisted the devil. Like I said, he didn't have a conversation with him, didn't play with temptation. He didn't give the devil an inch. He resisted, and as soon as he did that, the devil fled. He just turned around and went home. That was all it took. You will hear almost no sermons on Jude 9. Like most pastors, most theologians, they don't want to mess with this. They'll avoid it like the plague. Hey, I looked in every commentary I had. A lot of them just stuck in like one line, one paragraph sometimes about how this story, well, it's interesting, it's not cited anywhere else in scripture. And then they just moved on. They didn't They didn't try to track it down further. They didn't stop and dig in and try to see how this little story really applies to our lives today. But this story demonstrates exactly what you need to know to defeat the devil. Just like, just like Michael, you submit to God, you resist Satan, and he will flee every time. Next time on this podcast, we're going to make one more pass over Jude verses 8 and 9, and we'll also get into verse 10, I think, next time. Today, we're just really focused on the original source of this fight between Michael and Satan. But next time, we will discuss Jude's larger point. Jude is actually trying to make a larger point about showing respect for spiritual beings, even the devil himself. (laughs) It's a little bit weird, right? Like, respect the devil. Like, why would I show respect to the devil? If you want to know more about that, make sure you're subscribed so you can hear all about it next time. And in the meantime, what weird stuff in the Bible do you want to know more about? Weirdstuffinthebible at gmail.com. That's my email if you want to get in touch. And let's talk about why all this was going on, this stuff going on in Jude verses 8 and 9. Why would God be protecting Moses' body? I mean, Moses is already dead. Okay, so his body is just going to deteriorate away. Why is Michael standing guard over it? Why would the devil want it? Well, one logical deduction is that God has a plan for Moses' body at a later time. So one theory, and this will probably only matter to those who believe like I do, in a future seven-year tribulation, um, that's, that's kind of where I go on the end time stuff. One theory is that Moses will be resurrected in the tribulation and that he will act as one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. 
there are two guys and they spend the end times walking the streets of Jerusalem and calling on people to repent and believe in Jesus. And we're not explicitly told their names in Revelation. So there's a number of theories out there about who these guys are. Um, could they be two totally new people that we've never heard of? Or maybe there are a couple characters from the Bible. You know, one theory is Elijah and Enoch, because those are two people in the Bible who never died. So some people think they'll come back. There's another theory that they're often thought to be Moses and Elijah, because their signs are so similar to the miracles of Moses. You know, Moses had the 10 plagues. Elijah had his many miracles. And the two witnesses do very similar things. So I don't know. But if that would be the case, that might explain why Moses' body is being preserved or protected somewhere. Perhaps God intends to resurrect Moses and return him to his physical body to act as his witness in the end times. Now, that idea is kind of weird. I'm not totally 100% sure if it's right, but it I do kind of like it because it makes sense of a lot of things. It makes sense of why God might be so interested in protecting Moses' body in the first place. And, and I'm okay with it if the Bible gets a little weird. You know, we talked about a lot of weird stuff in the Bible today. And, and we also learned a great illustration about how to resist the devil. And so if you think that Satan getting into a fight with Michael over the body of Moses is weird, I hope you're a little bit more weird today too. Thanks for listening. God bless you for sticking around till the end. And we'll see you next time.